0: Construction in the fields of bodies burning as the war machine keeps turning, death and hatred to mankind, poisoning their brainwashed mind. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen the anarchist Wool this week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Here we are, the anarchist world this week, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. Now, look... I've got to make an apology. In 37 years of broadcasting, you know, I've never made an apology, Corey, but I'm going to make an apology. This is the day. This is the day. This is the day. Now, last week, I made a mistake. What? No. The last mistake was in 1962. Now, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. I said our good friends at Chevron, Chevron, who made $1.87 billion profit, paid $254 tax. Mm-hmm. I wash out my mouth with soap and water. Mm-hmm. They paid two hundred and seventy four dollars tax. Not two hundred and fifty four dollars <laughs> tax. So obviously my apologies to Chevron. Yes. You know, for getting that wrong. I mean that twenty dollars twenty dollars in an one point eight seven billion No look, it's a joke, okay? <laughs> Nobody's bothers ring us up. They wouldn't bother. Isn't it pathetic? All right, let's move on. What's again? Anarchist Society is a voluntary, non hierarchical mm. society based on the creation of political and social structures, which are based on direct democratic principles. The people involved in decisions make those decisions, then elect or appoint recallable delegates at a local, regional, and national level to coordinate decisions. A society where wealth is held in common and used for the common good. So, if you want to. Have millions of people thrilled to your announcements. If you want to decapitate people, this is not the world. This is not the program for you. We're very nice people. Anarchists are very nice people. I mean, ISIS has done one great thing for anarchism. It's actually rehabilitated the cause. Okay, let's move on. Now, today, I'm just going to, tr- you know, I usually don't stray into foreign events, but this isn't really foreign events. I just want to try to make sense of what's happening in the Middle East And Paris And everywhere else Now We hear the word terror And terrorism And I've just noticed that France has now Joined the war on terror Which uh, was, I think was well, the U- United States of America Commenced about 15 to 20 years ago You know the ongoing war to, You know the old you know, 1984 war that never ends Now I don't call the people who were responsible for the uh, slaughter in Paris terrorists. They're not terrorists. They're religious fascists. And I think what we need to do is we need to put things in a context we can all understand. Because when you use the word terror, it doesn't really mean much in a political, social and cultural dimension. Now obviously the group behind the Paris Outrage has an ideology, has a strategy and it's based on a belief system. And their belief system is based on a book which somebody wrote, you know, 1,500 years ago. That's, That's their belief system. It's got nothing to do with reality, nothing to do with facts. It's like any other religious belief. It's a belief. Now people for belief don't actually really have to justify that belief to anybody. So what we need to do is we need to put it in a broader contest so we can actually understand what's happening in the Middle East and the rest of of the world. Now obviously obviously to a significant degree the creation of ISIS to a significant degree is directly related to Western intervention in the Middle East in 2003 and then I think it was 2010, I've forgotten the exact year, 2008. So it's directly related to that intervention. Directly related. 100% directly related to that intervention. But what it has spawned is a fascist movement which uses religious belief as its guiding principle. That's why people are happy to strap on a suicide vest and blow themselves up and take a few people with them because obviously they're going to go to heaven, aren't they? Well, that's their belief. I don't know if they're going to go to heaven or not. That's their belief system. So what you have is fascism in its purest, simplest form. You have a fascism which is based on the concept that anybody else who does not share your belief system or who does not respect the state apparatus you have created is the enemy. And we've seen this ad nauseum through human history where people think they have the solution to the problem. And the Nazis had the final solution to the jewish problem so we've got fascism comes in many forms you've got secular fascism you've got religious fascism at least with a secular fascist you can negotiate but if a fascism based on a belief system there's no room for negotiation because obviously god's on your side now obviously there are religious fascists in every branch of religious belief in the world and the historical landscape is scattered, scattered, littered with the stories of people whose religious certainty has led to their extinction everywhere we look. And if we look in India today, we'll notice that Hindu nationalism is becoming an important force in that country and the effect that that has on minorities in that country. And if we look at the Middle East, we've noticed that religious fundamentalism, either it's, whether it's Shia or Sunni or whatever, is becoming an important dimension in the social and political struggles in those areas. So to define something as terror doesn't really help us understand what the issue is now what people don't seem to understand is what happens in Paris and what happens in Syria has a profound effect on what's happening in this country because what sets aside a fascist society from a non-fascist society is the ability of minorities within that society whether they're religiously based or whether they're Nationally based, whether they're culturally based Whether they're racially based Whether they're politically based Is that minorities in that Particular society Are actually able to Utilise what rights And liberties are there To protect themselves from the majority I mean that's the essential difference Between a fascist society Whether it's religious based Or a secular Fascist society I mean there is that pluralism which in many regards is a weakness because it doesn't make society homogeneous and it's much easier to control a homogeneous society than a non-homogeneous society so the, flu- the you know the backwash of what happened in paris and it will happen somewhere else around the world and it will happen and it may happen in this country and it, it may not but if you've got a fascist movement which it believes has the answers to the world's problems through their religious interpretation of some text which somebody wrote, you know, who had, a, who had God's ear, whether they're Christians or Muslims or Hindus or Jews, you know, you begin to create the type of environment which breeds terror because you use terror in order to have obedience. And that's the key about a fascist society. It is happy to use terror to ensure the populations it controls follow its demands. And to many, in many regards, it's the people of Syria under IS control. Who are the ones who are most terrorised? They're terrorised from the sky and they're terrorised by the religious fascists who control their society, who make demands on these people and if these people don't follow those demands you get some of the most grotesque, brutal punishments possible. Beheading, crucifixion, maiming and before you get a little bit carried away this is not just an IS issue. This is an issue for all religious-based fascist cultures like Saudi Arabia where many of the punishments which are meted out by ISIS to its people, the people it controls, have been the norm in that feudal monarchy which is a partner of the West for generations. So this is about people like you and me caught in the crossfire. Because as the religious fundamentalists, religious fascists grow in power, what the state does is remove our rights and liberties in an attempt, theoretically, to protect us from an ex- external threat. So, what happens over a period of time is that the society that you're fighting, you begin to mirror the society you're fighting. And you find those rights and liberties people have taken for granted for generations and which most people have never actually uh, activated or used disappear. And the third element of this particular situation is the element of individual fascism. And this is what's happened. This is what we see in Australia. This is what we see in Europe. This is what we see around the world. When people begin to think of their enemy as not as the people who control and own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, the people who set the parliamentary agenda, but the enemy becomes the other. The person of a different religious belief, the person of a different colour, the person of different cultural practices, the person of a different nationality. And what this does, it feeds into extra-parliamentary fascist movements who use that fear of a religious fascism to augment their own fascist ranks in order to promote their agenda. And the greatest beneficiaries of the Paris tragedy will be the National Front. End of story. And you may see a National Front government in France in the next three to four years if these outrages continue. So it's people like you and me, atheists, because remember in in a religious fascist state, there is no role for the atheist or the agnostic. You are the enemy. You need to be eliminated people who believe in individual rights it's no accident that a heavy metal concert was targeted no accident at all so as we go about our day-to-day lives I think we need to understand and remember and to fight back not just against the religious fascists who will sooner or later meet their gods but also elements within our own society which are trying to remove those rights and liberties that we have won and we have exercised since the Eureka Rebellion on the 3rd of December 1854. Now, I know it it may sound a bit grandiose, but I think it's important that we understand the three-dimensional aspects of it. Another thing is, the Middle East is no longer that important to the world. With climate change and alternative energy sources, including nuclear solar, water, shale, you know. What we're finding is the central role that the Middle East played in the world is shrinking. And you may have noticed that the old neoconservatives are no longer talking about putting boots in the ground in Syria, you know, and uh, getting rid of these people, but talking about letting them kill each other off. That's the role. Then you've got another dimension. You've got two other dimensions in the Middle East. You've got that dimension where oil is becoming less important. It's still important, but less important. It is not essential you know, to make a buck. Not essential for the corporate world to make a profit. There are alternative energy sources. Many of them decentralised. So then you've got two other things at play. You've got the historical division between Sunni and Shia Muslims, and what we're seeing is a coalition forming between secular dictators like Assad and the Iranian government and Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is a Shia organization. These are organizations. These are political. These are religious. Based organizations which are natural enemies of the majority Sunni population, you know, Qatar, Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, the list goes on and on. So you've got this internal struggle as Iran, which is the proxy for Shia movements in the Middle East, flexes its muscles and forms an alliance with the United States. Then, then you've got Russia, which has come in to play on the side of Assad. And they've come in to play because they would like to go back to the days of the Cold War. And if you think there's going to be a political solution for the Syrian people soon, there's not going to be a political solution because obviously the United States backs certain forces in Syria. Russia is backing certain forces. And what they would love to do is get rid of the religious fascists, and divide the country on their ideological lines. And I think that's what you'll see in the next three to four years. But unfortunately by them, you'll have hundreds of thousands of people who've died. Now, some people say, well, we deserve it all. We deserve it all. Because we did the invasions, ISIS is a creature of the West, and we just sit back. Well, I say to these people... If you get lung cancer from smoking, do you say to the person who's got lung cancer from smoking, well, it's your fault, we've got to deny you treatment? It's the same as far as the religious fascists are concerned. Irrespective of how they were created, they are religious fascists who want everybody to follow their line. Now, if you don't want to follow their line, you need to be involved You need to open your mouth and you need to be involved in movements which push democratic reforms, which resist the state here in Australia taking away our rights and liberties. We need to speak up, especially those of us who have got no religious beliefs, who think it's insanity, insanity, that somebody of a religious belief, whether they're Jews or Hindus or Muslims or Christians, can actually use the state apparatus or create a state to impose their viewpoints and their will on us. If there's one thing that we learnt through the Reformation and more importantly the age of reason, is that reason should be the basis by which we Create human relationships, create societies, not a belief system. Because a belief system can be usurped by people who want to exercise power, who will use that belief system to impose their will on other people. So, who knows? What I'm trying to do in my own head is make sense of what's happening. Put it into a political dimension. If you don't put it into a political dimension, well, you're going to fall into the trap of, one, either supporting the state in its efforts to remove those rights and liberties that we enjoy, and two, getting really angry and blaming the other for the situation, not blaming the political movement for the situation people find themselves in and it's, we are at a critical juncture like Europe was in the 1920s, a critical juncture there is nothing both sides would love more than a war of civilizations. love it good for business, good for a lot of things but that type of war is what breeds intolerance and fascism and allows fascist organisations to take over the state and then impose their myopic vision on their citizens through legislation and force. So it is a critical time in human history and it's important that people like us voice our views about what is happening because the last thing I would like to see in this country is the development of a fascist movement like occurred in the 1930s which has a hold on a population which is feeling increasingly isolated who feel that their problems will be resolved if they direct their attention to the other, the Aboriginal the Torres Strait Islander, the Muslim the refugee the China, the Chinese person and that's something that we need to vigorously campaign against and fight against. Because when you have two fascist ideologies, you know, facing each other, the big losers are the people they control. We saw that in the uh, Second World War. We're seeing it in the Middle East. The big losers are the millions of refugees that have streamed out of Syria who had their food aid cut off by the West a few months ago, who are now streaming into Europe and to a lesser degree trying to get to this country I mean there they are the ones who are suffering. listen the anarchist world this week broadcast across australia the community radio network look I don't pretend to know to know you know, but you've got to look at it in three ways: you to look at it as a religious battle between. Various sects within the Muslim faith in the Middle East. You've got to look at it as a great superpower struggle between Russia and the United States trying to carve up the Middle East. You've got to look at it in terms of a of a struggle uh, between uh, religious fascists who want to use the gun to impose their will on the populations they control. And you've got to look at it all three ways when you look at it. But the important thing we must never forget is that it's not the other's fault. And it's not right that we lose those few rights and liberties we continue to exercise in this country. you listen listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is I'm hosting today's program. If I could compliment, uh, this um, program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Let's move on to some interesting, more local issues because we are at a critical phase locally. As I said last week, you know, what we're seeing is a deflection of the debate about who should provide services in this country, who should pay tax. It's that simple. Who should pay tax? Where does the revenue come from to maintain and extend? the social security system, the public health system, the public housing system, the public education system in this country. And for far too long we've been told that it is a problem of too much spending and that we need to decrease spending in order to bring the budget into surplus. And the current government and the current opposition are all about in their own ways, decreasing spending. But as you know, there is a section of... There are two sections. As I said last week, there are four classes in 21st century Australian society. There's the corporate class, that 1% of the... The 1%, that small section of society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, and all those people on those boards of those national and transnational corporations who, you know, make a great living. A great living. Pity I've never been invited to be on a board. I wonder why. could make a great living, couldn't you? If we were all invited to be on the board. But so there's that 1%. And they've become so powerful in this country. They've become so powerful in this country that they have usurped the power of Parliament. Our parliamentary representatives, whether at the state level or the federal level, are no more than corporate puppets. Because they have redesigned the laws in this country to such an extent that taxation is a voluntary issue amongst the corporate sector. As I said last week, Chevron, $1.87 billion profit, $274 tax legally. Rupert Murdoch's hundreds of millions of dollars profit, receives an $886 million tax refund from the Australian Tax Office, who don't even bother to appeal the decision. In 2013, late 2013, legally, And when the ex-treasurer, Mr Joe Hockey, who's going to enjoy himself as ambassador, the United States was asked to make a comment, he said, no comment. Why would you upset the boss, eh? Why would you upset the kingmaker? Why would you upset the person who's pulling the parliamentary strings, the puppetry, the the strings? Why would you do that? Then you've got you know, large corporations like uh, IKEA paying 3% tax and the list goes on and on. But the good thing, you'll, uh, you'll love this, the good thing, the first thing, the smooth, urbane new Prime Minister, Mr uh, Turnbull did when he came into power, is that he allowed legislation to be passed, which means that any corporation that has more than $100 million turnover will not have to have their tax record released publicly. So not only will you be fleeced, you'll be fleeced blindly. You won't even know who's fleecing you. You won't even know who the 24-carat corporate leaners are. So that's the dilemma. So you've got that section of society. Then you've got the investment class. It's a new class which has been created in Australia over the past 40 years. It is the child. The deregulation, privatisation, corporatisation, globalised revolution has given birth to the investment class, which consists of about 20% of Australians who legally minimise their tax by investing. Where it's in the stock market, there are many, many advantages tax-wise, whether it's in the property market, where there are many advantages with negative gearing. Now, I found this fact very fascinating. 1.3 million Australians have taken advantage of Australia's negative gearing laws and now own a second property. 1.3 million. 80% 80% of that $1.3 million taxable income is between $30,000 and $80,000. That doesn't mean they earn that amount. What it means is they are actually able to use the same legislation the corporate people use in order to legally minimise their tax. Now, I'm not attacking people who decide to take advantage of corporate taxation laws to minimise their taxation revenue legally by negatively gearing the issue is not the individual who's involved in that rort all they're doing is obeying the law the issue is governments that have allowed those rorts to occur in order to create a new class who identifies with the corporate class, which identifies with the 1%, the investment class. People who've got enough disposable income to not only meet their day-to-day needs, but have enough money to invest. And by investing in Australia's friendly taxation laws and friendly corporate laws, they can actually minimise their income to such an extent that 80% of the 1.3 million people who negatively gear pay taxable income between thirty to eighty thousand dollars. So obviously. You go you got thirty grand, I can assure you no bank's gonna give you any money, you know, to buy a house. <laughs> Even if you got fifty grand or sixty, you're gonna have troubles. So this is in terms of your yearly income. So you can see how the corporate tax laws have now corrupted and created this investment class who legally legally use all the ropes that are available to them to minimise their tax. Then you've got the traditional working class. And the working class, I mean, many people in the working class are now part of the investment class. And the, and the difference between investment cl- being part of the investment class and the working class is, do you make more money from your investments than you do from your work? And if you make more money from investments than you work, you're part of the investment class. Now, obviously, there are many people in the investment class who are mainly, who are also part of the working class. And the working class basically consists of people in this society who make enough money, that's about 50% of the population, who make enough money to meet their everyday financial responsibilities, who don't have any money left over, to invest or don't have the capacity to borrow money to invest that's your traditional working class and then you've got the 30% of Australians, about thirty-three point thirty-three percent who rely totally on social security benefits to survive people on disability pensions old age pensions, single parents pensions unemployment Benefits And what we've seen over the last 20 years is a ongoing attempt to marginalise, degrade, you like that word? It's not just in Syria we use the word degrade, and criminalise to a large significant degree people on Social Security benefits as if they're bludgers. That's the key. The 24-carat leaners. Who fill, their money, who fill their pockets with corporate welfare, you know, they're the heroes and heroines. Well, those people who try to week out an existence on an income of 250 to $450 a week, who are on social security benefits, well, they're the bludgers. They're the bludgers. So we've seen this consistent attack, which is part of this GST push, because this government this federal government and the federal opposition do not have the intestinal fortitude or the guts to tackle the problem of revenue from the corporate sector. You don't need to change the constitution. You don't need a revolution. All you need is a simple act of parliament. You could introduce things like a stock market turnover tax. You could introduce a 1% turnover tax on corporations whose... Turnover is more than $5 million a year. Bang. Bingo. They can do whatever they like to get rid of, uh, you know, minimise their tax legally, but you can't minimise your turnover, can you? Unless you do it illegally and then you've kind of got a problem. So there are things that can be done, but nobody ever discusses them. Nobody ever raises them. And why do we need more revenue from the corporate class and the investment class. We need more revenue because you can't keep asking the 50% of Australians who are working, who have no disposable income after meeting their day-to-day bills, and the 30% of Australians who rely on social security benefits to continue to bear the burden. And that's what this so-called debate about the goods and services tax is. You divert people's attention from what are real issues. Now, yesterday I was at a public housing forum in Frankston, in Melbourne. And it was quite interesting because we had a federal, an ex-federal minister there, Mr. Bilson, who's the federal member of Frankston, or Dunkley, I think, and uh, a few other people around the traps. So. What was interesting was the fact that corporate welfare knows no bounds. The federal government pays six point six billion dollars per year to support public housing. But five point eight billion of that six point six billion, that leaves eight hundred million, goes into rent subsidies for private landlords so instead of letting the marketplace decide what is a fair rent what the Commonwealth Government has done is given a handout not to the people who are paying rent but to the landlords and the landladies it's given their their negative gearers, it's given them the opportunity to rake in corporate welfare. Five point eight billion goes into rent assistance and you think, oh, that's wonderful. But let's not forget that of the 1.3 million Australians, and that's two point it's around two and a half million, three million who rely on this rental assistance when you add in couples and children, that They're paying 50 to 60 to 70 percent of their social security benefits for the privilege of having a roof over their heads. And the Commonwealth government continues to artificially increase rents by giving money to private owners instead of investing money in public housing or giving state governments money to invest in public housing it gets better it gets better and i will concentrate a little bit on public housing today it gets better it's you wouldn't read about it now in every field in a capitalist economy the best way to control the beast The best way to control that small sexual society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication is to have some real competition. And you don't have real competition by allowing three or four corporations to dominate every field of human endeavour in this country. You don't have competition. You have a cartel. You have collusion. It doesn't have to be on paper a wink wink nod nod collusion and that's why you know people's bills continue to increase on a daily basis so what is the best way to have competition in a capitalist economy i'm not talking about a socialist economy i'm not talking about you know the anarchist nirvana i'm talking about today now right now and the best way To have real competition is to have a strong public sector. What happened when the Commonwealth Bank was privatised over 20 years ago? We saw the banking cartels introduce fees and charges that you couldn't even imagine to such a degree that a significant proportion of their profits is not from smart investing, from fees and charges which are levied on their customers. And the poorer the customer, the greater the fee and charge. For example, if you go to somebody else's automatic teller, take out $20, the fee normally is $2. That's 10%. If you go to somebody else's uh, automatic teller, you've got $100 in your account, you take out $800, the fee is $2. So the issue is that the smaller the amount of income you have, the greater amount of fees and charges you are paying. So removing the Commonwealth Bank from the scene, removing a bank which was owned by the government from the scene gave a green light to the private banks to basically rot the system, charge what they like. And in every field of human endeavour, it's the same. For example, the privatisation of airports. Now, most airports around this country, well, all airports were privatised during the Howard regime, or era, whatever you like to call it. And now we are seeing private corporations who own these airports refusing to develop the facilities because it's going to cost them money and asking for government handouts in order to develop these facilities. They're quite happy to make a buck while they can, but when they've got to put their their hands in their pockets to actually upgrade facilities to suit the 21st century, no way. And they're quite happy for people to wait inordinate amounts of time and for people to get in the most difficult situations, quite happy to put use that to put pressure on governments. And you see it consistently everywhere where... Essential infrastructure like airports airports has been privatised. Let's look at healthcare, the latest example of the privatisation juggernaut. Medibank Private was privatised by the Abbott-led Liberal National Party government. Thank you, Tony. So, what happens when the airport when the uh, it was privatised? What happens when it was privatised? Well, guess what. Fees and charges and access to services by the 40% of Australians who rely on private health insurance have gone through the roof. Obviously return to shareholders for Medibank have been really good but in terms of services and the type of products which are available to their subscribers down the down the uh, down the trap down the hole down the toilet and it goes on and on and on and on and that's the dilemma if you don't have a mixed economy in a capitalist society the private sector will do everything it can to rot the system whether it's the privatization of secondary education, whether it's the privatisation of tertiary education, whether it's the privatisation of the taste sector, where we've seen some of the most creative scams in human history, where corporations take government money and then provide no services to people who've paid fees in order to be educated. So allowing the private sector to dominate the marketplace is a recipe for increasing prices, decreased services, a lack of competition. Now, I'm not a genius, but why aren't people talking about that? Why don't people who have a similar viewpoint, and there are millions in this country, these are not my ideas. I mean, you're lucky in a lifetime to have one original idea, and I think I had that about 20 years ago. So these are not my ideas. These are, these are recycled ideas. These, these are facts. Public housing. Every state government in this country who are directly responsible for providing public housing have done all they can to destroy the concept of public housing. If you don't have a strong public housing sector, which is based on not on providing the principle of providing crisis accommodation, but giving affordable accommodation to people who rely on the private rental market who could never Never get a loan because they're not investors. You could never get a loan. If you don't have a strong public housing sector, what happens is homelessness increases, dislocation increases, family violence increases, issues of equality as far as social integration decreases. People are forced into ghettos. What public housing does, public housing scheme based on spot purchasing, what that does is actually create a cohesive society. 25% at least of all housing stock should be public housing. And when people talk about infrastructure, why isn't public housing on the infrastructure list? They talk about roads but isn't the fact that somebody needs a roof over their head and under the current capitalist system will never be able to secure secure accommodation in a lifetime isn't that a reason to have a large viable vibrant public housing sector which is not run by private organizations masquerading as community groups or private religious organizations who have been given public housing in Victoria, hand over fist, to manage, and then will be given the titles by the current Labor government in Victoria? People say, "Where's the money, Joe? Where's the money?" It's not a matter of where's the money; it's a matter of political will. We could, we found the money in the 1950s to build large estates, slum reclamation programs across the state of Victoria across the country where public housing was actually built to resolve the problem of housing security and accommodation for individuals where rents were fixed at 25% of a person's income and maintenance was provided three and the list goes on and on It's not on the political agenda. It'll never be on the political agenda while we hold back and say nothing. How can you fund it? Simple. Let's go back to my original idea. Turnover tax. If you have a turnover of more than $5 million per financial year in your business, you pay a 1% levy which goes directly to providing spot-purchased public housing in the community, which helps to create social cohesion, which helps to create societies where the religious fascists cannot get a hold of. That's what it is. Another simple thing. Those of you who know a little bit about housing will notice that if you buy something off the plan, you don't pay stamp duty which is quite a major a significant part of a purchase of a of a house or a unit you know when you it's resold significant impost on individuals and that obviously that stamp duty is used to provide state services why not why not remove stamp duty exemptions for new units and homes and use that stamp duty to create public housing. The greater, and people say, well, that'll increase prices. It may temporarily, but the greater the stock of public houses, the more downward pressure on rents because there'll be all these empty units and flats around the place which people will have to, you know, drop their rents to fill. And this will have an effect on housing prices—the ridiculous prices that people are paying in Australia today for a house. I think the average house price in Sydney is seven hundred and fifty dollars, and seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and seven hundred thousand dollars in Melbourne. It's a little bit more, I think, every week. I mean, it's ridiculous. These were houses which twenty years ago were selling for one twentieth of that value. Another thing: if you're a you know, a little developer. And I don't care whether you're Chinese or Mongolian or come from the moon or a Martian or stand on one foot or paint your nose red. I don't care who you are. If you want to develop something, you want to set up a nice skyscraper and make a buck out of it, 10% levy. 10% levy. You can either provide 10% Percent of the units in that apartment block as public housing, which is given to the state as public housing, or you pay 10% up front before the development starts and people say, oh oh, there won't be enough houses, of course there'll be enough houses, all the changes is the mix as the number of public houses increase to provide not just crisis accommodation, but affordable accommodation to people. As the number of public houses increase, there'll be downward pressure on rents, rents will decrease, and there'll be downward pressure on housing prices because the stock will expand. But again, these are ideological decisions that people need to make. These are ideological decisions that governments need to make. And governments will never move. They understand the power of the corporate class. They understand the power of the 1%. They understand that their political fortunes depend on donations to fund their campaigns. But more importantly, they understand that the corporate-owned media plays a pivotal role in ensuring their re-election. Look at the way the corporate-owned media treats the Labor Party and the Greens in this country. I mean... You wouldn't believe it that the royal commission has said that the, you know, Mr Shorten has nothing to answer, and Mr Skeeter, or whatever his name is, you know, the Building Laborers Federation, he's got nothing to answer. You know, you wouldn't believe it, would you? After you know, one hundred and twenty million dollar royal commission, we just do not even come to the, to a final. But the important thing is, governments will not move. They will not move. Now I can be erudite. I can talk under concrete. You can tie me up and throw me in a river with a bag over my head and I'll continue to talk. But it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter how erudite I am. It doesn't matter how stupid I am. It doesn't really matter. What matters is what you do. You can either sit back and continue to be a cringing, carping consumer, complain that you've been ripped off. Look, I was ripped off. I couldn't believe it. That's why I'm sick, I think. I was ripped off two days ago. I went to my local, you know, shop. I bought a little ice block. I thought, it's a hot day. Joe needs an ice block. I'm gonna chomp 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 this ice block. And because I'm a fastidious about what I eat, I looked at the label. This was a two dollar fifty ice block. Where did that ice block come from? Made in China. And I'm thinking the carbon footprint. To bring an ice block ten thousand kilometres to Australia. Incredible. But that's the situation. And we've allowed these situations to occur. And as I'm saying, interested in doing something? Join Pipsy. Public interest before corporate interest. Go to the website, Pipsy.net, fastest growing political organization in this country. Membership over three hundred and fifty and grown every day. We are the people we've been waiting for. It's not just a political party. It's about organising forums and mass actions, and you're going to see more mass actions next year as the membership rises. You know, you don't have to be an ideologue to join PIPC. It's an umbrella organisation that has one principle, putting the public interest before the corporate interest, whether it's the massacres and slaughter in Paris, is it in the public interest to remove what rights and liberties we have to protect us. Is it in the public interest? Is it in the public interest to have a strong housing sector? Is it in the public interest to have a strong education sector? Is it in the public interest to give taxpayers money to private schools? And the list goes on and on. So join Pipsy, Pipsy.net, go to their Facebook page, public interest before corporate interest, and before you know it, you get a little letter from me and a membership card personally signed. But there are other, if you think that's a lot of crap, there are other things you can do. Don't forget the Eureka celebrations from 4am to 10pm on Thursday the 3rd of December, not far away. You don't have to, no fees. Bring your own food and drinks for breakfast. You buy your own food and drinks for the dinner that night. If you do all the stations of Eureka, yes, there are stations of Eureka, we do have a sense of humour, there are 13 in total, you get a cheap $1 plastic Eureka flag. And, and honour, the honour you can put it there, you can show it to your grandkids in 50 years time and say I earned that, I walked 12 kilometres, I went to all the important places involved in the Eureka I was there and I participated with people with similar ideas, 4am to 10pm, the ball's in your court join us, corner of Eureka and Stoll Street go to the website, anarchismedia.org look it up, it's all there haven't got a web Hate the internet, give us a call. We'll send you up some material. Haven't got a phone, write to us. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Can't afford a postage stamp? Can't help you. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. It's a nice day. Get out of the house, get out there, get involved. Even if you just put up a placard outside Centre Lick saying, I've had enough, I've had enough. You'd be amazed how many people will turn up and have a chat to you and will say, I've had enough. All well, it takes a little bit of initiative, touch of courage, just a tincture of courage you put in the porridge and before you know it, you'll be part of a huge Social, political, cultural movement Which will turn this country on its head Which will tip over the apple cart So that everybody will enjoy the apples Not just the people pushing the barrow Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World This week on your local community radio station Listen in next week on your local community radio station And if you listen to this program for the first time Don't despair There's another one next week And if you can't listen to it, the program is podcast. Go to 3cr.org.au. And if you've got people you don't like, send them the podcast. Maybe, maybe they'll have more sense than you have. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Listen in next week on your local community radio station via the Community Radio Network. Blood destruction Sorcerer of Death Construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist Wall This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10 a.m. every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist Wall This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events wash my hands. Oh, Lord, yeah.